Hi, everyone. Welcome to Black Women's Journey. I'm so glad that you chose us out of the the thousands of podcast options that you have available to you. What is Black Women's Journey? It's creating a space for better health and professional outcomes for Black women. It's a quarterly podcast in three parts, starting out with a little conversation, some expert or elder advice, turning advice into action with tools that you can use in your life today, and a wellness kit. This is where we share information we wish we had known sooner. This is a selfless and selfish space because we are focusing on ourselves and we're being selfless in sharing what we've learned. This is a Black woman's journey. So we're back here, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again on Black Women's Journey. Uh, Black Women's Journey is a collaborative of Black women supported by women of color and allies. This week's hosts are Masheri Keels. Masheri, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Masheri Keels, a long-term friend uh, of Kim's since ages too long uh, to count at this point. Um, and professionally, I'm also uh, an associate professor in comparative human development, which just means we think about people. Very cool. And I'm Kim Allison Fraser. I'm a marketing communications consultant currently based in Vancouver. And yeah, Michelle and I have been friends since I think you were 12 and I was 14. And we met at dance class, if I have that correctly. Yes, you do. <laughs> as part of the Congress of Black Women of Canada Edmonton chapter. And yeah, so Michelle and I, we go way back, like, yeah, three decades. That's crazy. Um, and we don't talk often, but when we do, it's always a really good chat. And we just got to thinking um, that maybe there is an opportunity for us to help other young black women or even other older black women like we have become. I grudgingly admit that. Um, just to help them kind of talk through the challenges of, of kind of the performative aspects of uh, being, being a black woman, a professional black woman in particular. Um, Masheri has a PhD. I have a couple of masters. I'm about to do another master's. And, you know, we sometimes think that we are protected from some of the um, racially motivated crime that's happening at the hands of police, um, Black Lives Matter and the Say Her Name um, movement. Uh, but, you know, when we look at the statistics on the people who are being killed by police, it, um, no one is safe. So no amount of education is safe. No amount of credentials make you safe. No amount of seniority in your job makes you safe. No amount of living in nice neighborhoods. And so that's kind of where a Black woman's journey came from. A little bit heavy, but we want to make sure that we kind of keep it light and that we support one another and that we provide everyone uh, listening and each other with tools of to kind of deal with, you know, there's a very specific script that uh, you're supposed to follow in Western society. Um, and you're supposed to finish your degree, find someone to marry, get a great job, have a couple of kids and, you know, live the American or Canadian dream. And so we thought we would just talk a little bit about like our personal story and how we've either strayed from the script or followed the script. You know, for me, I um, got my first degree, then got an Ivy League master's degree, then started working for Microsoft, um, then got married. So check, check, check. Um, and then started realizing that I had some pretty severe fertility issues. I had uterine fibroids and that... Um, caused a lot of health issues and also kept me from becoming a mother. And because I wasn't able to become a mother and because I wasn't able to get um, proper health care to deal with 
fibroids. Um, I know a lot of women who have fibroids and successfully deliver several children um, because they've had good care. Um, I had a myomectomy, which is major surgery and takes about six months to recover from. Had a myomectomy. My husband wasn't supportive. Um, I remember he blamed me for us not having children. And then I realized that I didn't want to be married to someone who wasn't supportive. So I asked for a divorce. Um, throughout all of that, um, I was striving um, to continue to grow my career, um, starting off uh, as a manager at Microsoft and and then um, probably within about five or six years, uh, moving on to director positions and for a while seeing some growth in my career. And um, when things started to kind of not grow as much, I started consulting. Um, I started off playing to the script um, and because of health challenges um, and then my marriage ending, um, things kind of veered pretty significantly away from the script. So would you say that you've had anything like similar or like if you want to talk about like how your career progression was and, and how you went through that and Davu and your ex-husband? So I would say giving those aspects of my life story, they didn't, in most of my way, my, my kids, um, from on the surface, stayed pretty much on script in that um, I got all my degrees, uh, which was not actually something that I set out to do. So I guess, I guess if I was telling my life story in um, two, five minutes or less, what I would have to say that matters to give some context is that I moved from Belize, which is in Central America, there's this tiny little Caribbean country um, in the midst of Central America. Um, the interesting part there is that I was born into a country that was still a colony, uh, British colony mm -hmm. at the time of my birth. We didn't get independence until around, formal independence until around 82. So, um, and the interesting piece there for why that matters in my life is being part of a British colony um, is what ended up being part of the route that enabled my parents to move from Belize to Edmonton, which is in northern Canada, um, and where I met Kim. Where actually. we met. <laughs> and um, so I moved at around the age of eight from a place where I was in a pretty much a black context in terms of my local community, my school, my everything I knew was a community of um, black people like myself, and moved to a place where I was the only black girl in my elementary school. There was my brother and two other boys who were brothers from Nigeria. And so my world completely flipped upside down in terms of what I knew it to be. And somehow, because of how life circumstances have gone, I've been in overwhelmingly white context since that time in all education and communities in Edmonton and in Canada and then when I went to grad school in the U.S. and where I am now as an associate professor there are contexts that are you know 90% white in terms of most of the colleagues and people that I interact with and so that has ended up being a consistent context in my life and then within that context, it's, of course, the matter of navigating who I am, first as a black girl, black adolescent, and, you know, and now as a black woman. And in that context, it was one where, from going to grad school, which for me was my way out of Edmonton, I knew... Um, I needed to move out of that context and grad school was the way out. Um, and then I stayed in school, got my PhD and then became a professor and have, so I say to people that I have somehow never left school. Um, it's been the context that I'm in now as a faculty member. And um, 
but my work, all of my work is on issues of kind of educational inequality and how that matters for other um, families and kids that look like me in all of those different contexts. I have one child, he is 20 now. And Amazing. Yes. Wonderful. A little butterball. Yes, wonderful. <laughs> and I had him in grad school. And I don't know how life would be different if I hadn't had him in grad school in particular. Because I happened to be in a profession I didn't know, but it turns out I happened to be in a profession um, as a college professor where um, there's a high rate of childlessness among women um, because um, of this thing called the tenure clock where you have to do your most productive work in your first kind of seven years on the job. And that does not line up with the fact that women have a age-determined period of fertility that really matters. And so a lot of women end up having to... They, they decide to delay childbirth um, during mm. this period. And a lot of them finally end up, if they get tenure, and then deciding to try and start a family, it being um, biologically too late for them to do that. And Black mm. women in this context are some of the ones with the highest um, rates of childlessness because oftentimes they're also waiting um, to get married. So right. they are waiting to advance in their profession and they want to be married um, before they have kids. And all of those mm. things don't always line up with the biological clock. And for black women, it's, um, they're the ones for whom it's the least likely to um, yeah. line up with the biological clock um, for a ton of reasons that we can talk about some other time. Um, mm. But I had my son in grad school, and so I started my career with him, and I didn't have to make those choices when I saw a lot of other women having to make those choices. Um, were, you, yeah. were you doing your... Were you doing your master's or your PhD when you had Davu? I can't remember. I was doing my PhD. Um, so I, it, you know, it was several years into grad school um, when I had my son. I was married at that time. And part of the reason I also um, had him at that time was I also had lots of issues with fibroids. Um, like Kim, that's something that we have in common. And um, because I was married at that time, my doctor, um, gynecologist said, you are not someone who can wait to have kids and expect that it will um, be there as an option for you later. If you want this, you might really want to start doing this now. Um, and I had, and this was about two years after I'd had my first um, surgery to remove fibroids. And so she had, that happened. And a new one started growing back really quickly. And she was like, well, you got to make a decision now. So that's how yeah. um, I came to have my son then. And then um, later had a hysterectomy when I was 38. Um, so she was right in, in saying this was not going to be an option for you later. Um, so there's just so many things that have to line up coincidentally or not to mm -hmm. make all of these things. Um, work and oftentimes they just don't line up and there's so many tough choices um that have to be made but in this context yeah. i'd had um my son so when my time came for my hysterectomy when that was necessary for my health um mm. that happened and for me i have not looked back uh, in terms of the hysterectomy mm. and that's just because my thing that I always said was my uterus was trying to kill me. And so <laughs> I was okay parting ways with that when the time came. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. So yeah. part of my story, there's of course a lot more. I was saying to Kim the other night that um, it's easier to tell your story when you're like 20, 25, 30. But as you get yeah. older and older, it gets so hard to tell a simple story about all of the twists and turns. Well, because 
I think, you know, for black women, we are constantly performing, right? Like, and especially if you come from families like ours, highly educated, middle-class families, the, the pressure is on from the time you're born. I mean, it's, you know, I've, don't remember a time when I wasn't told you're going to have to work twice as hard as any white woman, four or five times as hard as any white man to get half as far. So you are constantly taught to to look your best, put your best foot forward, behave properly. Um, you know, don't be too loud. Don't be too quiet. Don't be too tall. Don't be too short. Don't be too sexy. Don't be unsexy. It's this constant um, kind of self-editing and I find myself even even now, like, I don't even think about it anymore, right? So I work in communications, and one of the things that I pride myself on is is having, you know, qualitative, but also a quantitative understanding of who my audience is so that I can craft my message. And it's really instinctual for me, and I thought about this the other day. It's because I'm constantly figuring out how best to present for who it is that I'm going to be interacting with. If I'm applying for a job and the person that I'm interviewing is a, is a white male, I'm going to wear something that is a little bit revealing, but not too much. I'll wear heels. I'll do my hair. If I'm interviewing for a job and or interviewing for a, a, a project with a client and it's a woman and I'll try to find out how tall or how short she is. And I'm 5'9". Mashari's really tall. Mashari's like 5'10". So I don't know if you've ever done this, but literally I'll find out how tall or short the woman is. And if she's shorter, I'll wear flats and I'll pull my hair back and I'll make sure that like my shirt buttons all the way up my neck. And I mean, these are just like small things, but it's something that's required in order to survive as as a black woman and you know survive maybe a little bit of hyperbole but as we'll, we're about to get into here it's it's probably not um so it's just this constant pressure to to self-edit such that you are no longer connected to who your authentic self is you you have to perform or perish as a black woman what what are your thoughts on that? We talked a little bit about that hot mess millionaire that you that you saw and a couple of other things that that kind of resonated on this kind of topic. Yeah, the need to perform. Um, always on stage. It's mm. I would say um, a lot of conflicting messages. Um, I mean, I think like you. From home, I got a clear message, not just in what my parents said, um, you know, Caribbean parents in Canada, about the need to perform, the need to present, um, the need to make sure you weren't doing anything that could be judged inappropriately, um, or and clear message that you would already be judged. <laughs> Because mm -hmm. you were black in this country, yeah. but then on mm -hmm. top, so then, which meant you really couldn't do anything um, behaviorally to mess up um, in any way, and that you were always performing to compensate mm -hmm. for that blackness, um, which was a clear message that came from home. But I will also mm -hmm. say that sometimes conflicted with. Um, a societal message, which was not necessarily directed towards us, but just a general societal message of be yourself, be your true self, be your authentic self. Um, <laughs> you, you know, what's that? And what's that? <laughs> yeah, it was always kind of this. I I don't believe that because everything else tells me <laughs> that mm. if I'm my authentic self, um, I'm not going to get very far. Um, and so yeah. I think I've always recognized that clash and that clash seems to be particularly strong, um, in this moment of, um, for this current generation of youth that are getting, um, these messages about bringing your full self to wherever, to school, mm -hmm. to work, to wherever. Um, but I think they also know that even though right now that message is being directed towards them as black youth, 
um, mm-hmm. that things are changing and you can be your full self wherever you are. You should be able to be your full self where you are. I do think that most of them are suspicious of that message in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned uh, a conversation you had with a young grad student. Did you want to share that a bit here? Yeah, I was um, it's, when Kim and I were talking and she asked, we were just talking about the idea of um, authenticity and being your authentic self um, and showing up with that authentic show itself wherever you go, um, that one true self. Um, and we were just kind of talking about this idea of by this time, by the age that we are, and because we have had to navigate so many different contexts, most of those contexts, we are not the dominant group of Black women, are not the dominant group in those contexts, that it is, um, as you said, Kim, second nature to um, mm-hmm. understand who you need to be in this context in order to um, thrive in that and succeed in that context that mm-hmm. um, is just something that we do now. And that work is one of those places where um, the idea, it's, it's just, it was never there for me. The idea that I would ever um, bring my authentic, true self to work was mm-hmm. never even a fantasy for me at any point. Um, yeah, it's always it's been a place where you need to sh- I felt that I needed to show up and perform um, what was expected in order to succeed in that space. Um, and I have been able to succeed in that space. And I was mentioning that a young black graduate student, black female graduate student at my university, um, she's in a department at the time when there were no black faculty in her department. Um, mm-hmm. There's myself and one other in my department at the university. And she found me um, through some networks and sent me an email wanting to just connect. This was the end of her, close to the end of her first year at the university. And she just wanted to connect. And so we came, we had this meeting, um, where she just wanted to talk about her experiences here and my experiences here. And she wanted to find out what was the best way for her to succeed at this institution because she was finding it a challenge to kind of fit in and find her space. And she asked me, um, well, how do you do it? How do you um, manage to show up here and find space for your true self here? Um, how, do you, how are you able to bring your whole self to this workplace, to this university? And I thought in my head before I answered her and while I was answering her that, She's not going to like this answer because she so wants to be able to just be who she truly is and be accepted for who she truly is at this institution. And I knew I was about to tell her that that was not going to happen um, and that I made no attempts um, to fool myself that that was ever going to happen to me. And, um, And... that was the only time that we ever um, met and talked. We continued talking after. But I could see the disappointment in her face when I was telling her that, mm-hmm. you know, if she wants to succeed here and in this profession and in most institutions she was going to go to, she was going to need to figure out which parts of herself and how she would present those parts of herself in her professional mm-hmm. life. And then yeah. be her true self in other spaces of her life. Um, mm-hmm. And she was, she was quite dejected and disappointed that, um, and, and I understood and upset in some ways that I had made that choice and that I was okay with having made that choice for myself. Um, Mm -hmm. so, but I think it's tough. It's just, it's tough because I think, you know, many, it is that thing where I know I said it and that was what, 20 years ago when I would say, you know, it's, it's 2000. How are we still here? Why are we still doing this? What? And so I can imagine her saying, you know, you know, it's 2018. Why are we still here? How are we still doing this? And being like, but we are, you know? Yeah. And 
That's exactly how I feel, kind of. I mean, this is a, a bit of a, a quick gear shift. Um, I certainly feel those same ways um, in the professional world. Um, and the more more recently, I've been in work environments where, um, you know, everyone's really left-leaning and wants to be all about diversity and inclusion, and you're encouraged to bring your personal life and your professional life together. That's incredibly uncomfortable for me. And whenever I do that, I always regret it. Um, so I'm in a situation right now where I have been really open and I've been open before. And I, I know what, I know what it's going to end up being. Someone's going to make a comment about the car that I drive or the neighborhood I live in or, you know, the clothes that I wear or who does she think she is. And just this rhetoric and this, kind of gossip kind of like continues to like grow and grow and grow till it hits a fever pitch and um you know we figure out if we we need to part ways or not so that's kind of been um my trope and that's that's why I primarily consult now because I'm so used to having that dynamic engaged um as a consultant I'm a little bit more removed. So it's a little easier to keep my personal um, life and, and kind of just continue to perform in that professional on that professional stage. When the professional stage and the personal stage, when, when you're asked to bring those together, um, I always falter because I'm, I'm not comfortable. And quite honestly, my predominantly white uh, counterparts aren't comfortable with the parts of me that fit into their preconceived notions and the many parts of me that do not fit into their preconceived notions. So lifestyle choices um, and that kind of thing. But here's the, here's the big shift. So it's 2020. Why haven't things changed? It's 2000. Why haven't things changed? Um, I honestly am still in shock as to what we've seen transpire over the last five or six years with the killings of um, professional well-educated, middle-class Black people. Um, you know, we, we've we heard all of the, the names um, from Tamir Rice all the way through to George Floyd, but we really want to call attention to all of the Black women who have lost their lives. I think of Sandra Bland on her way from Chicago, where Machery is, to take a job in Texas for a new job working a new job in Texas, working with her alma mater. She was arrested for changing lanes and ended up getting killed. I think of Breonna Taylor, um, a frontline worker, 26 years old. She was working to keep people safe in the middle of a pandemic, and she was killed in her own bed. I think of the Say Her Name campaign um, that started in 2014, um, they released a report called Resisting Police Brutality Against Black Women. Um, I'll just say that again. Resisting Police Brutality Against Black Women. Um, and it's put out by the African American Policy Forum and the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy. Um, and it covers the killing of women from as young as seven to as old as 93, total of 45 women over the course of about five years. So this may seem like it's a huge shift in our conversation, but the thing that makes me concerned personally about my personal welfare, um, but also where we're going as a society is that like I said, Sandra Bland was a professional. There was another woman um, who was a, a computer scientist, Latanya Haggerty. She was a computer analyst. She was talking on her cell phone in her car. She was killed by police. Since 1993, actually, this uh, this report covers uh, killings, 45 killings since 1993. Of course, we've seen an uptick um, more recently with uh, Breonna Taylor, Sandra Bland, um, and there's even a woman in Toronto here in Canada, Regis, who, Regis Korczynski Paquette, who um, called police or her mother called police because she was having um, a mental, um, mental illness uh, issue. And six police officers came to her 24th story condo, escorted the family out of the condo, and within minutes, um, Regis was dead. 
thrown from her 24th story balcony when she called or when her mother called police for assistance. So these are really tough times. Um, and this is kind of why we wanted to, to have this conversation to kind of add some dynamism to who black women are to the challenges that we face and this is just an additional challenge. Um, Mishari, what, what are your thoughts? Like how, how are you kind of coping? Like how, how are you processing, you know, the collective grief that, that we've all been dealing with? It's a lot. Um, essentially it's a lot. And the piece that I always remember when I think about the Say Her Name campaign or any others is they, this has been happening all along, that these events have been happening are not new. We're just in a moment because of the change in technology and social media and cell phones that we are hearing a lot more about the events um, that have happened um, associated with, with police brutality. Um, and so one of the first things that my mind always goes to is who are all the names that I don't know um, where this has been happening over time um, and the names who don't make it onto these campaigns. So probably that idea of thinking for every name that's on this campaign, mm. there are probably several more that aren't listed, um, but yeah. who suffered the same fate. And that I don't see myself as any different from those women in terms of being at risk for that possibility. Because, you know, I know from experience that nobody, the police, when they stop you, don't first check your credentials. Um, in that, Where's your CV? Can you, where did you go to college? Yes. Nobody asks Are those you? things. Are you a cashier or are you a university professor? Nobody asks you that. It's just your skin is black and you're female. Therefore. Yes. Clear assumptions mm -hmm. are made and all the actions follow those assumptions that are made. And so um, that's, it means that, you know, I do have my own set of policies where I'm at night. There's not a chance I'm pulling over when I get stopped by the police. I will drive. Mm. slow I will slow way down and I will drive slowly mm. to the nearest um gas station or convenience store and mm. we can have our conversation there during the day I will pull over um if we're on the highway I don't know I'm pulling over on the highway I'm gonna slow way down so you know I see you and I'm slowing down put my blinkers on mm. but I think we're gonna drive to the next exit where I can pull in at the gas station there I'm just absolutely not comfortable because I know that their first impression their first thought is one that I'm a threat um regardless yeah. of what they're stopping me for because all of the others so many of the others it was being stopped for routine traffic incidents um mm. mental health um calls for support um you know searches of possessions they were absolutely nothing where those black women were a threat um, but somehow they ended up losing their lives um and so i have clear protocols that means again that I set for myself in terms of how I relate with the police and the problem with that is they're supposed to be there to protect me mm. but that's not my relationship with them um, at all and that's it it also then means that you're always walking around with this heightened level of stress and anxiety and there's a lot of research by this point um, that we have showing how that general higher level of just daily stress and anxiety because you just never know what could happen around the next corner or how things could turn on the dime um, mm. 
which has had so many consequences for how we live our lives, for our health, for our bodies, for our minds. It has so many documented negative consequences for our well-being that um, white women, for example, just don't have to, they don't have to live with. They can live with a much higher level of comfort that when they call the police, if they need to, they will come in support of them. Whereas I, mm-hmm. I, I would say too, I haven't had to do it, but I think about it. I have a friend who says, if she ever has to call the police, she's going to be quite clear of saying, it's me, the black woman who's calling you. So when you come to the scene, I'm the one who called, I'm the one who needs help. Um, because there are instances, there's one that happened in Chicago where a black woman with a white partner, white man, um, he was physically abusing her. She called the police. And their first uh, initial response was that they put her in handcuffs. In handcuffs. Oh they ended up God. eventually arresting him. But the initial oh response God. before they got any information and before they called back the dispatch to find out that it was her who called them was that they put her in handcuffs. Um, and so, you know, it's, it just means that you live your life with this different level of like heightened stress. It's always with you. Yeah. Really good tips. I, I hadn't thought about that. I, you know, especially since the pandemic, I, I don't go out much. I go out about once a week and I actually avoid going out at night. Um, I just feel less safe going out at night and I have a car. Like I, there's no way that you would get me on a subway or on a bus at night or even in a taxi. It's not super comfortable, but, uh, yeah, I kind of avoid going out at night and, um, a couple of incidents have happened here in Vancouver too. Um, there's one incident where there was a black woman, um, in an area not far from me, kind of on the the east side of town, who um, was going into a subway station and she was walking kind of slowly, like from the security video, it seemed like maybe she had had surgery or her she was limping or something wasn't quite right. She wasn't walking with energy. And um, a white guy kind of sidled up to her from behind kind of slowed down when he got close and he wound up and he punched her twice in the back of the head. She spun around and was sprawled on the ground to the entrance of the subway station. That's here in Vancouver. There's always this heightened sense of having to maintain your physical safety. Um, and certainly in these times, um, it's just compounded even more. And so before we get to kind of dark here. Um, I want this podcast to be a resource to give people support. And most importantly, I want to share kind of coping mechanisms and tools. So how do, how do I do it? Nobody's asked me, but I'm sharing. I say no in as nice a way as I can. And that can be anything from stay late at work today and, you know, we'll like you more. No, I'm so sorry. I have another commitment. It could be, um, you know, let me open that door for you when you're carrying, you know, groceries or something like that. I'll assess the situation. And if I think it's safe, okay. Um, if not, no, you go right ahead. One good example is if I'm about to cross the street or cross past, um, pass an, an exit for a parking lot or something and a car stops, I always wave the car through. I'm like, nope, you go ahead. <laughs> I'd rather stand here on the side of the street and see you go back, drive past. Um, speaking up too, um, I'm about to have a difficult conversation at work and I am, you know, thinking about how to have my key messages ready so that um, when things come up, I'm I'm able to speak up about my experience. I'm in a situation now where the organization is very much on the outside committed to diversity and inclusion. On the inside, my experience is not quite the same. So I'm I'm really kind of measuring how much speaking up I can do. I do a lot of self-care. I get massages and manicures and facials and um, I uh, 
burn lots of sage and incense. I love candles and tea, which I'll talk a little bit more at the end of the podcast about. Um, I do a lot of kind of daily healing rituals. Um, I have my core desired feelings identified. So I take myself through those every single morning when I make wake up. Every morning I do a grounding and a clearing ritual. I do some meditation and I do some stretches. Sounds like a lot, but really it's about 15 minutes every morning that I have to have to really get myself clear and ready for the day. Ms. Sherry, do you have like any of those kinds of rituals that you do or any tools that you want to share that you've incorporated to your daily practice? No, and that's a problem. I don't have good daily tools for um, these things. What I, and I know that that's a problem because more it's more that what happened is that when I get to my weekend, I just want to shut the world up. I just want to shut the world out. I am very quiet and introspective on the weekend. And for me, it's such a, that I feel like I'm always recovering um, on the weekend from battles during the week um, at, at work, um, just in terms of, you know, fighting for presence fighting um for you know the topics um that i want to work on that those are centered and also i'm kind of also at a stage in my career where i'm fighting to make space now for those junior um to me for diversity um for those who are junior to me so that has become more of the kind of um challenges that i'm navigating at work Versus space mm. for myself, because um, right. that's the benefit of being in a job where you get tenure um, if you can survive and stay in a job long enough. So that your own and you, um, you position, have, you have tenure now, right, Michelle? You protected. You have t- you have tenure now, right? Oh, you totally broke up. Oh, did I break up then? Uh, no. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Oh, okay. I was just asking if you have tenure now. Yes, and what- I do have tenure. Um, and that's why I'm now in the space of um, trying to make space for those who are junior to me in terms of the hiring process and the student recruiting process and things like that. So those are now the battles um, that I have in the organization. And... When I get home, I my nights and my weekends, um, I have a clear separation. Like, mm. goodness gracious, a clear separation between work life and everything else. Um, those, like, do not cross. Um, and that's just, that's my way of managing the being on guard um, all day long. And you spend so many hours at work. Um, or how, you know, that because work is not a place where I can bring, um, my full self to, right. that I need to be able to close the door on that and walk, leave that and enter a different space, um, where those stressors aren't there. And so my nights and my weekends, um, are often very quiet and restorative but I also know when I'm not taking care of myself enough because things just shut down. Like when I leave work, mm. like it just, I just want to shut down. Um, mm. So I do need more self care rituals that can be embedded into my day. So that it's not this yeah. all or nothing. It's not like all stress and then needing to shut it out um, in order to recover for the next day of stress. It's just, it's not healthy. Um, not at all. And also yeah. for me, it means I don't want to stay in the profession um, because when I think like doing this for another like 20 years, I'm just like, no. 
Mm. I do. I would love to find a professional space that was also a validating space. Yeah. That would be so lovely. Um, But at least if it's not for me, I want to try to make space so that there's others for whom, who knows, maybe in 2040, (laughs) (laughs) maybe in 2040, they'll have a validating um, space at work. Not holding my breath, but I do want to make sure um, that all of this like stress that we put ourselves through to be in staying in context, um, that there's some measure of improvement or some measure of like you're doing this pod- this podcast, there's some measure of lessons that are passed on that don't have to mm-hmm. be learned new. Um, yes. For each group. I think that's important. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. I am going to keep hope alive. 2040, <laughs> maybe in 2040. <laughs> kind of doubt it because it was 2020 and we're still not like I can honestly say when you and I were growing up in Edmonton I never thought in a million years that any of the stuff that's going on right now would yeah could could even happen like that's all stuff people marching so that black people don't get killed that was Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in the 60s and we grew up in like redneck backwoods Alberta and we never thought that that was possible we played to the script, we got our degrees, we got married, we check, 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 check. You, I'm so proud of you, tenured professor, create that space that's validating and I'm happy to help you do that. I still, on a regular basis, am faced with microaggressions and questions about my qualifications and people actively trying to sabotage me in the workplace. So I never in a million years thought that I would be in the place that I am right now. That said, you know, all, all is not lost. As we were talking about before, I um, typically have a lot of things going on. Typically always working full time with a couple of side projects and maybe a side business and traveling going on and social going on. So I keep myself very busy. Um, and I think honestly, if I didn't, I would lose it because yeah, um, the stuff that goes on in the workplace, um, in society, I never imagined as even a remote possibility. So yeah, hopefully in 2040. Thank you so much, my dear friend. And um, thank you for coming on this journey with me. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Yay. Thank you for having me. Yeah, honestly, when I started thinking about this concept, I mean, we've talked a lot about how we could work together because we have such good energy together and the universe blesses us so much when we're together. But um, yeah, Rachel and I know each other from Calgary, but from a very different time. Do you want to take us through a little meditation now? Absolutely. I've got some uh, some visuals I can share with you. So I'll invite all of you to... Just take a moment to notice your seat. So I want to invite you to come into your space and find the comfortable seat. For some people, that might be lying down. You might have a cushion and you might be cross-legged or you might be kneeling. So just take a moment or two to find that comfortable seat. And as you come into this present moment, start to settle in. And allow your bones to feel really, really heavy. So give your bones the opportunity to work with gravity, to hold you strong and rooted. And as you root down in your seat, I want you to imagine that there are roots growing out of your feet, anchoring you even further And these roots are spiraling downwards into the earth, holding you so firm, supporting your precious self, keeping you grounded and secure so that you can begin to relax into this space. And as these roots allow you to be held and supported, I invite you to bring your intent your attention to your breath. 
So as you begin to focus on your breath, take a simple, deep inhale through your nose and bring some fresh air into your belly. So we're going to soften our bellies and allow them to fill And when we exhale, I want you to imagine it's like a gust of wind coming out of you. And you can even make a sound like a whoosh. So let that breath out and then inhale again through the nose, filling the belly, allowing that fresh oxygen to give you energy and vitality to support you. And again, like a gust of wind, just let that go. Open mouth, exhale with a whooshing sound. And we're going to take one more beautiful full belly breath in through the nose, filling as much as you can, and then letting that go again with an open mouth, audible whooshing sound, like a gust of wind. And as you start to return your breath to normal, bring your attention now to your heart. And as you shift your focus from your breath to your heart, notice how amazing it is that your body continues to breathe even without your attention. So you're so supported here, your precious self, your beautiful self, and you're now focusing on your heart and you're just noticing, what are you feeling today? What's coming up for you? So again, allowing any thoughts to just pass on down the river like little boats, You're not getting on the boats, but however, you are noticing what those those thoughts and what those emotions are. So as you start to tune in to what's real and present for you, just sit in this space for a few moments. And as we sit into this space, I want to invite you to imagine you're sitting in the sunshine and a beautiful grassy field with little tiny white flowers and little tiny yellow flowers and little tiny pink flowers and little tiny blue flowers. This beautiful green grass, all these colorful wildflowers. The sun is beaming down and warming you up. Your heart is connected you're, you're connected to how you're feeling. You're connecting to whatever is coming up for you in this moment, but you're not getting involved. You're simply observing. And in the space of observation, you begin to notice the colors around you becoming more bright, more vibrant. And as you sit still even longer, you notice a sweet bumblebee taking pollen from the flowers. And you realize just how blessed you are in this moment to have this ability to sit in the present moment with yourself, with nature, with your breath, and with your feelings. And you know in this moment that everything is right. And you know in this moment, everything is right because you've taken this moment for yourself to show yourself love, to show yourself care, and to give yourself a chance in this busy, busy world to be present for just a few moments. Take another deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth like a gust of wind. And I invite you to take your hands in front of you as if they're in prayer position. Rub those hands together, creating a little friction, still keeping your eyes closed. And then place one palm in front of each eye, not touching your face, but just in front. And notice how you feel a little sparkle there. And within this sparkle, take a moment to gently flutter your eyelids open. And then bring your hands back down into your lap. 
Thank you. So we just had a fantastic um, little short meditation journey with my dear friend, Rachel. And um, like I was saying earlier um, on this podcast, I'm hoping that what we can do is create tools to help us all get through um, this very difficult time, Um, you know, playing to the script and sometimes ending up having a very unexpected life journey can be challenging. Um, I, for one, uh, like I was saying earlier, have always had a bit of a side hustle. When I lived in Vancouver before, I had a tea shop as well as working full time. And I right now have a communications consultancy and work full time. But part of the consultancy is focused on wellness. And through wellness, I I bring together um, flower essence therapy that I've been doing for the past several years. My love of tea from back in the days when I had a tea shop. And just the idea of of healing through fire. So I always have candles or smudge sticks or incense going at my place. Japanese incense is a dream, something just very special about it. And so I came up with this concept of floor lumen nest. So floor references the flower essence therapy. Lumen is the the power of that flickering light um, or that ember on the edge of your sage or um, incense. And nest, just because it's, you know, you feel comfy. You feel like you're you're able to nest when you've got flowers and light and warmth. And so Floor Lumen Nest is the wellness division of my consultancy. And it's all about creating a sacred space for healing. And as part of that, um, this podcast, we're, we're trying to do it quarterly. And with every podcast, we're also going to have a wellness kit that we'll send out to people. And the wellness kit for the first podcast is all about healing trauma in chaotic times. So I have... Um, soy wax candles that I infuse with essential oils and healing crystals. And the candles uh, for this quarter um, are going to have a piece of Amazonite crystal in them. Amazonite is uh, an ancient crystal that's very difficult to find. I was lucky to be introduced to two Kenyan sisters who source ethically mined uh, crystals from from Kenya. And um, actually, as we record this podcast, I am anxiously awaiting my Amazonite delivery. Amazonite, again, is an an ancient crystal and it's known to um, help heal trauma. Uh, The candles will also have vetiver, which is an essential oil, a little-known essential oil that's really good for healing trauma as well. And then we'll round out um, the olfactory pleasures of the candles this this quarter with lavender, who... um, which we're all familiar with, and bergamot. And um, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with how lavender helps promote calm and alleviate stress. But bergamot, uh, that kind of orangey citrus, sweet citrus smell that you get um, with Earl Grey sometimes, or, or sometimes you get that sweet kind of flowering of, of, a, of a citrus smell, um, that bergamot smell um, as an essential oil is also really great for promoting calm and alleviating stress. So the candles are, are available on my website, kafconsulting.net. Uh, click on wellness and then you'll find Floor Lumen Nest. And there you'll find this quarter's wellness kit, which is my Amazonite um, vetiver and lavender candle for healing trauma, along with Tulsi or holy basil tea. So Tulsi is an adaptogen with uh, antioxidant properties and it has a calming effect. It helps to enhance memory and cognitive function. And it's actually been used both in Ayurveda and in Chinese medicine. It's uh, effective for having a restorative effect on your nervous system. Uh, Tulsi is actually a powerful corticosteroid modulator, meaning that it has the unique ability to reduce circulating stress hormones in the body. And so 
with that tea and with that candle, I wish you well. I wish you peace. I wish you calm. And I wish you the soul strength and vision and hope and luminosity to heal from trauma in these chaotic times. Again, um, please reach out to me on my website, kfconsulting.net. Click on wellness. And if you use the promo code journey for Black Women's Journey, you'll also receive a a 10% discount on what will be the fall wellness kit. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, it could just be one person. It could be a million people. It doesn't really matter. I really needed to do this for my own sanity and for my own therapy and for my own self-care there's so much heaviness and darkness in the world right now um and as black women just because of the way society is we've we've kind of got cards stacked against us but you know we've always been resilient we've always been the backbones of our families our communities our societies and i just wanted to do something um to make me feel like i was contributing to give you something so if you're one person a hundred people a million people if you're hearing this in 2020 or in 2040 when we hopefully believe things will get a bit better um thank you thank you for joining us um This has been a very heavy first episode, but it was hopeful and healing too. Join us next time for an exploration of health outcomes for Black women, how we can cope, keep going, all while still being authentic. This is a Black woman's journey. It's where we stop self-editing and live full, dynamic, and rewarding lives. Look for us on your favorite podcast platforms, follow us on social media, and I love you for joining us. We hope to sit with you over tea again soon on a Black woman's journey. Thank you.